We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friend at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com. It's that time of night, you can't stay up tight. So come and join the people and I'm feeling all right here on old. America. Welcome back. All right. So we're watching the uh, Senate tomorrow. That's going to be the big vote. I guess the House uh, where it would start and they're going to vote on an article of impeachment. From what I I don't know if I've actually read the whole thing yet, and I don't know if they bundled in the ability to remove Donald Trump's ability to uh, be able to run for office again in the future. I think that has to be a separate thing. So that some people wonder, hey, if we push this, that means he'll lose his pension and security and he'll lose this, he'll lose that. Well, there has to be a separate motion to uh, prevent him from running for higher office again. That just doesn't automatically happen with an impeachment. It doesn't work like that. So that needs to be taken into account. We had all kinds of calls that were on the line that couldn't wait till after the news, which is fine because I got a lot of other things I want to talk about. A couple of the text messages that came in, um, man, it looks like Big Al was really having fun text messaging us there for a while. <laughs> um, here, Let's see. Mary Lynn texted in, the bad people that showed up to do harm had their attack schedule at the time his speech was ending, but Trump went long and his rally folks got to the Capitol after the extremists were inside which someone pointed out in I listened to an, uh, a, a comment from Rudy Giuliani the other day. He said, if you were at that rally, there's no way you had time to leave, go to a store, buy things that you're going to use to break into the Capitol building and then go and do it under this timeline. It just didn't exist, which meant they came there with the intention of doing that. It's not something that they heard as a call from the president to act on it. And when they put all of the evidence together or however they handle this, there will be, I think, a lot of pushback, just basically them using this venue, this and at the very end of the presidency to try to push this going forward again. Um, I don't know. 
I don't know what's going to happen the next uh, day or two or week. It's all I know is that on January 20th, the inauguration of Joe Biden will happen and Donald Trump will be out of office. And what you wanted all along will happen and what people voted for here in the United States, a majority of them wanted will happen. And if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. All of this other stuff is more or less theatrics that are being put on in order to bolster and bring the party together based on their universal hatred for Donald Trump. And I, to me, I, I just I haven't heard anything that has changed my mind on that. I wanted to bring up a few other things. Ari Fleischer warns big tech censorship is going to create more harm than good. And there's a lot of people coming out, speaking out against this. There's even other countries that are looking at this and speaking out against this. And politicians in other countries, ones that don't even like Donald Trump, are talking about the warning that should be put into place. I think that many other countries have already addressed the problem that is these big tech companies, and they found ways to make them more consumer friendly, give more protections to the individual, because in a society like we have today, you almost have no power against these companies, no power whatsoever. And the way that they act here in the United States is there's protections against you for not only your privacies, but on top of that, your consumer uh, abilities to bring uh, and raise issues against them. Here in the United States, you just don't have that. I think that if we were to adopt this in, like we see in the European Union, it would be a good first step uh, into trying to wrangle back the unfettered and dangerous power that a lot of these companies have. And even Elon Musk came forward and he spoke out against it, but he also said maybe it's time that Amazon should be broken up. He said monopolies are wrong. He said, this is insane, Jeff Bezos. Time to break up Amazon. Monopolies are wrong. A lot of people have made that argument that Amazon is a monopoly and should be broken up. Think about all the other competitions and places there are. And look at that. If they have 50% of the internet going through their servers, roughly 50%, we should say, it was like 48% going through their servers, that is a ton of power. Imagine what else they're doing with something like that. So... Ari Fleischer came out on Fox News, and it was based on what was brought up a little bit earlier. Uh, and, and let me bring this up real quick. On Fox, Mike Pompeo, uh, they started with this clip of Mike Pompeo, uh, diplomat. He's able to do all kinds of different relations to other countries. He may even be censored. Oh, I got to plug this in here. Um, and, and he rose some problems when it came to the tech companies. Censorship, wokeness, political correctness, it all points in one direction authoritarianism cloaked as moral righteousness. Similar to what we're seeing at Twitter and Facebook and Apple and on too many university campuses today. And that was part of a speech he was giving. And he's right. He's right. It, the way it's cloaked, he's absolutely right. I think if the way that they try to regulate certain people on their platform, if that regulation was turned back to them, like let's say they were playing Uno and someone played a reverse card, in the same stringent type of uh, uh, ways that they regulate conservatives on there were to be used broadly against their own platform, they would have to shut their own platform down because they are not living up to the standards that they're setting for certain people. And maybe that's part of the problem with Section 230. They're able to get away with it. And the way that they have these protections means they don't have to self-regulate. And they can just do this and they can say it's, you know, the reason they're doing it is because of X, Y and Z, the rules of which they are breaking at the time. Um, but they are not 
held to the same standard that they're putting to other people. Uh, here's what Ari Fleischer said, and, and he took a different point to this. He said that when you have these groups of people that are kicked off and pushed away and continue to be pushed, it leads to things that you don't want to lead to. This is a slippery slope that leads all of us into a worse place. Censorship never works. Censorship doesn't get rid of the ideas. It creates a dangerous, more dangerous underground for the ideas to ferment in, and it creates a worse bitterness and anger. And that is the problem with one-sided censorship, and that is increasingly what we are seeing. This will not end well. Yeah. And on Sunday, Devin Nunes from California, a Republican, uh, someone outspoken, said that companies like Amazon, Apple, Google, um, all of their suspension of that app of Parler should be looked at as racketeering as part of an antitrust case that's already been brought up against Amazon, uh, excuse me, against Twitter, I should say. Well, no, against Amazon uh, because of them being dropped from their servers. Later, we find out as part of this lawsuit, they claim that Twitter and Amazon went into a partnership which would give them incentive to get rid of things like Parler, which, again, shows you the antitrust side of it. Is there a racketeering case for Devin Nunes to investigate? Possibly. Maybe they should. Maybe these tech companies need to realize very quickly that these type of tactics that they're using right now are being rejected widely by many different people, and it needs to be looked into. So that's where we're at now when it comes to it. Uh, Brad Young and I had a great discussion on this yesterday. If you missed it, go back to the podcast. Go to the Overnight America podcast. Just do a search wherever you get it from. Or you can look me up on uh, line. I think, do I post a link to it at KMOX.com? There is a podcast section at KMOX.com, and you can get all the audio right from there. And, and, and Brad Young really breaks down that uh, antitrust lawsuit. I, I think he does a great job of putting a case together for it. All right. So when we come back, I wanted to bring this one other thing up. Apparently, the CIA decided to open up the UFO vault a little bit early. I tried to look through it. I'll tell you what I found through the UFO vault and some things that are not that exciting. I don't want to break that for you. And also coming up a little bit later is author Andrea Pitzer. She wrote a book about an expedition back in the, well, what, 400 years ago? up into the Arctic Circle. It's a book called Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. Interesting look into a part of history. We'll talk to her about that later this hour, too, on Overnight America KMOX. Listening to KMOX has never been easier. Siri, play KMOX. Here we are in Overnight America, just trying to get through the night the best we can. And the house sets up will be another vote for a article of impeachment tomorrow. I think that's where we're at. We'll just see where it goes. Uh, joining us in a couple of minutes will be an author talking about getting stranded in the Arctic, Andrea Pitzer. And this goes back some 400 years ago. Real interesting way of exploration. So I think you'll like it. And we'll do that coming up in a little bit. So I saw the New York Post posted this, and apparently this information was released a few days ago. I didn't know about it, but the CIA decided to put out their Black Vault documents about UFOs. So I decided to go to the website where you can get it, and I can go to it right now because I downloaded it. And if I go over to my folder, I have them saved in UFO files, so I guess if for some reason a hacker ever decides to uh, look at my files and they see a folder called UFO this will probably be the first one they go to. But I decided to scroll through it. There's a lot of documentation. I think they said there was 90,000 pages or something like that. It's a lot, and it's overwhelming. So what I decided to do 
was first just do a search to see if I can find anything they may have investigated locally here in the area. So I searched for Missouri. I searched for Illinois. I searched for St. Louis. I searched for MO for Missouri, IL for Illinois. And then all of these things didn't produce anything, anything at all. But I decided to kind of scan through some of the different documents that were getting some false leads. Like, you know, you would search MO and it would be like a partial word or something. Uh, or maybe the way that it was transcribed was wrong. So it doesn't really, it wasn't in the context of being a state. So part of the different deals they've made is to try to release some of this information that was once classified into their investigations of UFOs. And when I go through these, it's basically, here's a TV report that had a professor say this. Uh, here's one. We don't know if there's someone investigating this. And those, there'll be like a couple of pages of them not knowing if there's an investigation. Like, here's an example, uh, a declassified FBI file from London back in, it doesn't say what year this is. Uh, it says... Uh, Moscow TV program preview for the week of December 23rd through 29th as provided by SEMDNEY. I don't know what that means. In addition to the normal commitments, the BBC will cover in process on merit additional central television and Russia TV programs marked for checking. And then it has a couple of timestamps of things that are going to be on in Russia during that time frame. Here's a couple of TV programs that they're going to be covering. And it's uh, several pages of a TV guide <laughs> that's the type of documents every time i look at them i see this and i think okay nothing exciting nothing exciting it's hard to find anything exciting like here i'm just going to grab another random one and see what pops up here is another tv program preview for the week of march 8th through 14th and russian tv so they were paying a lot of attention to what was going on in russia okay let me scroll down even further let's open this one up this one says China UFO Society meets to continue scientific study. This is from the 13th of May, 1992. It says Beijing, the fourth national Congress of the China UFO Society, which closed today, reaffirmed that in studying the UFO phenomenon, China will always follow the directional material guiding principle and a practical and scientific attitude. So here is a declassified piece of paper that said that the Chinese agency looked into it there wasn't anything exciting none of this is exciting to me maybe there's someone that has time and they have the energy to go through and try to read every single one of these but the way that the government works this is exactly how you could imagine these documents are laid out it's just a bunch of bureaucracy that is just laid out in a way that is not exciting whatsoever here's another one about cuban state tv all right so here's what's going on uh, a reform of the legislative assembly mold and blah, 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 blah. Again, nothing about UFOs in there. Here's another one about, uh, I guess, TV in Russia. The following review filed by this bureau roundup of reports of editorials, articles, and columns featured in editions in the Turkish newspapers. See, they're more or less gathering intel and information, but what they're not doing is what they're not doing is actually saying we talked to aliens. So anyone that's really hoping that this data dump was going to put something exciting together, just not there. Same thing that we saw in space news earlier this week was that one of the probes that we have at Jupiter has detected an FM signal, FM radio signal. Uh, 
And all my friends and colleagues in radio start to look at that. And they were super excited. They said, maybe I'll be able to apply for a job there. Well, naturally speaking, planets and different uh, things in space can actually emit radio waves without it actually being a transmission from an intelligent person or anything like that. And that's exactly what's happening there. There's just all kinds of different naturally occurring things in space that come out of places and planets. So it's, again, a sensational headline, but nothing there. See, I'm just going through and I'm scrolling and seeing if there's anything that's worth reading. But if you wanted to go online, the New York Post has an article where you can go and download it. Uh, there's two different options. You can download it straight PDF files where you can read the things or you can download it where it's been gone through and people have um, they've, they've gone through the processing where it's transcribed. So you can search documents to see if there's anything in there of significance. You know, I guess I could hold on. Let me just do a quick search here. Uh, can I do this and see if I can search for KMOX? Wouldn't that be cool if for some reason. KMOX came up in one of these documents. I should have done this earlier. KMOX search. Um, okay, let's take a look. Now it's going to look through 90,000 pages of documents. I would be thrilled if it found that something was brought up here on this radio station and the government monitored it. There was one time, do you remember when WikiLeaks dumped all of Hillary Clinton's emails that they were able to gather? So I did a search for the radio station I worked for at the time, and apparently the DNC Intel had an article from an interview that was given on a radio station that talked about the election that they archived and sent as part of the email chain on Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign. I thought that was kind of cool. I felt like, uh, wow, we really made it big. We were inside of Hillary Clinton's email dump. All right, so, so far, no results for UFOs and stories that may have been broadcasted here on KMOX Radio. Too bad. But who knows? Maybe someone will find something cool about this. But when you start to see the headlines, UFO files released, just know they're not exciting at all. We're going to take a look at your weather, and we're going to talk about some really cold Arctic exploration with author Andrea Pitzer coming up on Overnight America KMOX. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. News Radio 1120, KMOX, the voice of the Cardinals. And here we are in Overnight America. There's a new book called Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. It's coming out just uh, next week, I think. It's a matter of a couple of weeks. It's really soon. It is a week from Thursday. And joining us is the author, journalist, Andrea Pitzer. Thank you so much for coming on to KMOX. Thanks for having me on. 
This is an interesting thought because in mass media or in television or movies, a lot of times you think of some of the different common storylines where someone gets trapped in the middle of the desert and you look at the hot sun coming down and will they ever be found in the, in the middle of nowhere? I would say they need to do more about the Arctic because the way that this is described, getting stuck up in the Arctic sounds like 10 times worse. Well, first of all, the book is out today, so that's the oh. first exciting thing to get out there. Um, and second of all, I totally agree with you because uh, this high Arctic area that these guys were stranded in, um, two or three hundred miles above the Russian mainland, uh, above Siberia, is uh, Arctic desert. So it's basically like desert plus super cold with ice and, so, and polar bears. So you have all sort of the agonies of like no food. Uh, you do have water up there, but no food, nothing to eat, no way not to get scurvy and polar bears attacking you, and your ship is frozen in, in the ice. And so, yeah, I think that there's um, a lot more kind of harrowing and terrifying elements that you can bring in in the Arctic. So I'm, a, I'm in favor of more Arctic stories. <laughs> and not just polar bears, hungry polar bears. Hungry They're polar bears. Iron. They're getting lean, yeah. And, and, and these guys had not seen before the first of the three expeditions that they went on, they had not seen polar bears. So the first time they saw one in their first expedition in 1594, they had this idea that they knew of bears that had sometimes been trained to be uh, taken into Amsterdam and sort of performing on the street. So they thought they would bring back this white bear that they saw and <laughs> with them and get it into the little boat that they were in and take it back to Amsterdam with them. They learned pretty quickly that that was not going to be working. Yeah, so we're getting to the 1600s. You said, what year, 15, what for the, for the first 1594. expedition? 1594, so it was three back-to-back years, 1594, 95, and 96. They did three expeditions, and the third yeah. one is where they got stranded for the winter. So why go up there to begin with? What's the reason for them to explore that area? Well, same reason that moves most things today, money. Uh, they were wanting to <laughs> trade with China, and so they had financial backers in this new Dutch Republic, just when the Netherlands, as we know it today, was being born. And uh, they wanted to avoid Spain. They were at war with Spain for 80 years. This is right in the middle of that. And Spain had all the southern routes locked up. So they thought, well, let's get to China by going north and we can steal all that, you know, money, money trade. And when they find themselves up there, I'm sure there was a lot of unexpected things they started to document because you look at some of the diaries and different materials that were taken during that time. I'm guessing you found a lot of surprises to them. Yeah, well, this was the farthest north that any European had been uh, above Europe or Asia. So there had been, you know, some things that were known about the Arctic already. It's not like no one had been to the Arctic. Part of the European continent is on the Arctic. But up here, once you get north of the continents and up into these islands and then up above anything anybody had ever documented, they were literally off the map. So they saw uh, what was new for them, walruses. They saw polar bears. They saw uh, an effect, this sort of uh, mirage that can happen in which the sun comes up two weeks early after polar night, and it had never been recorded before. And they came back, and, and the main guy who documented the third voyage 
put it in his journal, and it actually caused people to disbelieve the entire journal for centuries in some cases because <laughs> people were like, that's not possible. And it was really only in, into the 20th century, and uh, Nansen, who was another really legendary explorer in 1894, saw the same effect and wrote about it, and people started to realize maybe this is a real thing. And it's, it's a, just a physics effect of an inversion layer and different temperatures, and it has all these very specific things, but they saw exactly what they saw. So it's kind of amazing. They were these like proto-scientists scientists, you know, going out into the world because they were looking at this new place that nobody had written about before. Yeah. And I think in modern times, going back to the Apollo mission and sending astronauts to the moon for the first time and what a big deal it was to have these astronauts come back safely to talk to them and watch their experiences unfold, which is pretty remarkable. So when they came back after the first mission up into the Arctic and they're starting to read and share their notes and some people are questioning all of this, were they treated, you know, like celebrities or what, what was the reaction to the, the people after that? Well, the the first and second voyages didn't get a real sort of popular treatment because they were really sailing um, as kind of emissaries of this new Dutch Republic. So it wasn't something that was written about uh, and publicized in a really broad fashion. It wasn't a secret, but it also wasn't advertised. And so after the first mission, they had this first group, the little mini fleet that went out, had split it into two and tried to sail both above and below these islands called Nova Zembla, above the Siberian coastline. And they both thought, so the, the scouting party that went north and the scouting party that went south, both thought that they had found a route to China. So they came back and said, we're good to go. So th they just outfitted, the answer was not fame at that point, but they outfitted a second fleet. And this was going to be seven big ships filled with cargo. And the idea was they were going to keep going and go all the way to China. And that second voyage was such a disaster. I mean, mutiny, guys getting eaten by polar bears, ship colliding. Uh, I mean, just people drowning. Everything that can go wrong went wrong. And so when they came back, they were really not celebrated at all. They were, if anything, they were a little infamous. And there was almost not a third voyage because of that. But it's that third voyage that they got stranded on. And that's kind of where the legend is made. Because not, not only did they go so far north into this place that was entirely off the map, but they were there for almost a year. They overwintered there, which that is the story that they came back that was translated into several languages within a couple years after their return. And Shakespeare mentions it in Twelfth Night. He refers to these guys. Um, it just becomes the whole idea. These islands they were stranded on, Nova Zembla, sometimes referred to just as Zembla in English, um, becomes this legendary, desolate farthest northern place that you can go and and so it's really that third voyage and staying there for the winter that kind of sets the whole template for what is the you know the harrowing polar bear uh polar explorer story you know all that suffering rather than just somebody exploring new lands but really having to like suffer <laughs> they, they kind of set the template for that all right, so name dropped by Shakespeare is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they don't even, he doesn't even have to use their names. He's just, he just has one character that has so insulted this woman. Uh, the guy is told by another character that basically you so, you've screwed up so badly. You have sailed so far north and out of my lady's favor, and you will sit there and hang like an icicle on a Dutchman's beard. And it, they were so famous, he didn't even have to use their names to name drop. Everybody knew what this story was. So I just think that's awesome. And, and, and they weren't English, right? They're Dutch. So this crossed international European borders at the time. It just became, you know, sort of the first polar legend. 
What a line. Wow, that is a skull dropper because when you think of Shakespeare holding it. Um, you know, what's interesting about all of this, I'm trying to look at the map right now. So the Nova Zembla, what is that close to? What is that by? <laughs> it's not by anything. It's um, if you were to go, uh, there's the Ural Mountains that kind of divide Europe from Asia. They, they are kind of a, an up and down vertical line, north-south mostly going, dividing Europe from Asia. If you go just past that and you head due north for about 300 miles, again, over Siberia, then you're going to be on Nova Zembla. So it looks kind of like a long, thin hot dog, hundreds of miles long, you know, way up in the Arctic. It's what's often called the high Arctic. Interesting. So the book is out now and people can find it and enjoy it for themselves called Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World and journalist Andrea Pitzer joining us. When you started to look at this, did you ever question yourself? How in the world did they pull any of this off? It's just even based on today's modern technology, this would be a difficult thing for most people to do. Well, I mean, it took 300 years for them to really get back uh, when they sent out some expeditions to the, try to find the ruins of the cabin. So, I mean, that tells you, even as technology improved over that time, how difficult it was still to get there. I'm sure some whalers came across the cabin at some point, but in terms of setting it as your goal to get to <laughs> from Amsterdam, it was still just almost impossible. And, and yeah, I mean, I do think about all the time how difficult it would be even today. I went there. I went on three expeditions to try to retrace some of their steps, and I actually went to where their cabin was. I got to tell you, there's not nearly as much ice there now. I mean, we saw very little ice in the region uh, and none at all where the cabin is situated. Uh, you can still see the ruins of it today. And so it, it's really the signs of climate change were super clear being there. And at the same time, I could stand out on that spit of land and from their descriptions see exactly how high the ice came and how high, where everything was and realize, I mean, it was just so desolate. So reading it for the first time, I felt like it was one of the most amazing survival stories ever. But I had never seen all the sources gathered together and anybody telling the story as a whole book in English. So I, I thought that people would enjoy sort of the, the entire story. Oh, that's cool. And for you to go there and to walk in the same areas where they were, I'm guessing... Is, is there a lot of tourism there today, or is this kind of a rare thing for someone to go back and visit this location? Uh, it's a little bit between the two. I would say it's a rare thing. Uh, there were a couple summers where I think that they had, you could sort of sign up and go. It's it pretty expensive, and they would take some people up there, but the, uh, that has fallen off in the last, I don't know, eight or nine years. And so it was never really a tourist thing. It was a little bit accessible at one point. It's become much more inaccessible. The Russians are not real friendly with military areas and security. <laughs> so it took a lot of permissions. And I had to go through a Russian company to, to make this work. But it's not like I wouldn't want to pretend I'm the only person that's ever walked that earth. Um, but it, it's, it's pretty difficult to get there. I would say it is not simple. And you need to have a pretty strong uh, stomach for seasickness if you're going to go there. Oh, boy. Well, I imagine, too, that when you're walking in the same areas and there's not a lot of tourists there, just, uh, you know, people going up there for the sake of doing it. Were you looking for artifacts personally? Were you trying to keep an eye out to see if there was anything dropped around that you might be able to discover? Well, they've been pulling. I mean, they've had, you know, major uh, archaeological like digs and stuff that was authorized to pull out remaining relics. So I'm sure there are still some things there. And I saw some things that looked suspiciously like bits of, of, of potential relics, but they've pulled 
there are hundreds of relics and museums. I went to see some in on Svalbard, halfway between Norway and the North Pole. Um, in Rijksmuseum, I got to handle the, arc, the relics that had come out of there, like beer taps and their shoes and books. And then um, Russia also has some. I saw a couple while I was in St. Petersburg. So most of the artifacts have been pulled out to sort of marine and Arctic museums around the world. But there's still the base uh, main logs from the base of their cabin are still there. And I had the archaeological map with me so that I could sort of walk the site and know how things were laid out and where things were. Um, and so I'm sure some of the people that came up a decade or two ago, you know, might have felt free to swipe some things. One hopes people wouldn't, but I'm sure yeah. it's super, super tempting. You know what I don't understand either? And maybe it's just because I think about books having a hard time surviving in regular conditions, but then you throw it that, you know, it makes an Arctic ex expedition and then it's 400 years later, it's frozen, it, it's wet conditions, they're on a boat and somehow some of these documents survive. That's amazing to me too. Well, some of the stuff that, that was paper that survived the best, they had rolled up and put in a powder horn. So it was like a little bit sealed, but uh, even the stuff that wasn't, it was in the cabin, and the cabin stayed mostly intact for most of that time. And in the Arctic before our lifetime, that stuff wasn't thawing. You know, it was like frozen, and it would stay frozen, and there wasn't this freeze and thaw that, that you see there very obviously now. So the Arctic can actually be a really good place to have things preserved. Now, I wouldn't want to stand, like, I wouldn't want to leave something fragile out on a windy ledge there. But if it's tucked away inside something, uh, the Arctic can be a pretty amazing place to preserve things. You think of these mammoths that they dig up, and you think of, you know, the, the, the different, uh, there was a dog they found not long ago. Um, I think that it really uh, acts in its natural state as a preservative, but we're seeing that less and less now with climate change. Yeah, all of these things are opposite of what I thought you would say. <laughs> and that's amazing to me. There's so much to explore, and I think that's why documenting this and sharing it with the world is an important thing to do. And I'm glad you did it. And do you mind holding on after the break? I'd love to continue to talk to you about your book. Oh, that would be great. It's called Icebound. You can find it out now in journalist Andrea Pitzer joining us. Icebound, shipwrecked at the edge of the world. And we're going to continue next on Overnight America KMOX. This is Overnight America, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michaelsflooringoutlet.com on KMOX. Oh, no. Is this right? Okay, welcome back to Overnight America. And joining us is the author, a journalist of a new book that you can find now called Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. And Andrea Pitzer, thank you again for coming on tonight to Overnight America. Happy to be here. So when you look at all of the different people that were part of this voyage, how many of them went there and how many of them came back? Well, I don't want to get too much into specifics because I don't want to ruin the story, but I will say that uh, on the Not boat... All of them. <laughs> Well, not all of them, and I will say that uh, 17 of them arrived at Nova Zembla, and uh, only 12 of them made it back to Amsterdam. And so wow. who lives and who dies, I won't uh, extrapolate from here. If people want to look it up, of course, it's a 400-year-old story. It's reasonable to do spoilers <laughs> on 400-year-old stories. But I don't want to because I actually wrote the book like a novel so that you don't know what's going to happen. You know, so if people want to preserve it, if they want to know the answer, they can go look it up. And if they want to preserve it, then I'm not going to ruin it for them. But not everybody yeah. makes it home. And I will say the first guy that dies is the carpenter. And that's when they need to build the cabin. So they started oh, out like, no. on a bad footing. Yeah, that's not who you really, you know, you, if you could pick somebody, you'd pick somebody else. 
And all of the different preparations that went into something like this, uh, it's amazing because all of that could be thrown out the window in a moment's time when the most important person of that voyage finds himself first out. Uh, and I saw this one quote, the patron saint of devoted error. So as they were going through this, it sounds like the margin of error for the things they were doing were pretty slim. They had to make sure they get a lot of things right in order to survive a trip like this. When, uh, just Were there like a bunch of errors that just simultaneously happened and worked against their favor, or were they more lucky than they were having problems? Well, it's a combination. I mean, they didn't know what they were doing. They knew how to sail a ship, but and they could tell latitude really, really precisely, but you couldn't really tell longitude from a moving ship with any decency for a long time after this. And so they really didn't know east versus west by a long shot where they were, but they knew how close they were to the equator, which they could do a lot with. Um, so they were, they were always having to get lucky, you know, as they were heading for places. And they also didn't really dress for the weather. They didn't really plan Arctic clothing the way that we would today. And they met with some indigenous people along the way, some Sami people, and then later some Nenets reindeer herders over at the southern end of Nova Zembla. And they didn't seem to take a cue from how those guys were dressed. And uh, you think that they could have clued in from that. They did make fox fur hats, but there's no indication that they made polar bear fur clothes, and that would have been a lot warmer than what they were wearing. So it's interesting that um, I would say it was some errors by not adapting to the things that they saw around them, but they turned out to, to sort of just persevere, and when things didn't work, they would try something else. They built some fox traps that didn't work. They made some new ones, but they also got lucky. They almost poisoned themselves to death eating polar bear liver at one point, which it turns out has toxic levels of vitamin A and their skin peeled off from head to toe on, a, on several of them. Yeah, really. So they, they, they were sometimes their own biggest threat to themselves. But at the same time, you know, when their, their ship is frozen in and it stays frozen in, so they can't go home in their ship and they have to try to sail for home in their small boats, which is just amazing. And time and time again, they get to an iceberg and they're like, this is going to be the last iceberg that we have to get over. We can't get around it, so we're going to drag, we're going to climb up it, we're going to drag our boats up it, all our provisions up it, we're going to haul it across the top of the iceberg, we're going to get down on the other side, and there's going to be open sea. And time and time again, they get over the other side, and there's another iceberg. And so oh. even, if, even if I want to give them a hard time for making some really bad choices, I have to say they were incredibly tough and when they hit that next iceberg, they just were like, okay, we got to do it again. And the toughness of just enduring that, I think, uh, you know, no matter how you feel about the Arctic getting opened up by Europeans, no matter how you feel about the dumb things they did, um, I found a lot to admire in, in these guys just working with each other and taking care of each other to try to survive. Wow. Climbing iceberg. This story has everything. So it's called Icebound, shipwrecked at the edge of the world. And if people wanted to find your work, where can they go? They can go anywhere. I mean, it's IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Your local bookstore is always a great bet. I'm told it's in BJ's, so there's lots of choices. Would it be important for you to put this book in your freezer before you read it to get into the mood of reading the story? Oh, no, you'll get into it. Because when I was writing it, I put myself in this little tiny room. You don't need the icebox. I put myself in this little tiny room to write it, and I swear it was summer when I was working on it the most. Every time I came out, I was shocked that it wasn't snowing outside. <laughs> so I think the book will do the job. In fact, I would recommend a warm blanket and, you know, a nice drink to, to settle in with, maybe something warm. 
and no climbing icebergs. So you might be tempted, depending on where you are listening to this interview, if there's a lot of snow in the future, you may look at when the plow goes by and puts a big pile of it in your front yard. You'll have to resist the urge to go out there and try to climb it to see what's on the other side. There Just you to go. Get to the, uh, <laughs> the spirit of reading Icebound, uh, shipwrecked at the edge of the world. And one other time, I, I just want to make sure everyone knows, of course, the local books people can find this online if they search for Icebound, which is out today, or journalist Andrea Pitzer. In the way that you write it, who do you think this book would most appeal to? Um, I am told that it is uh, like outdoor jocks, that it's a dad book, that if you have a tomboy daughter, I've had so many different people tell me like, you know, what it's an amazing book for. I would say if you have a dad who loves history or if you love like survival and adventure stories. I love it. All of which are great categories for people that are listening right now. Uh, journalist Andrea Pitzer, Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World is the name of the book. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for coming on to Overnight America. It was great to be here. Thanks so much. And she joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. And that'll about uh, do it for us here on Overnight America. And that's part of where we are today, uh, and it could all change by tomorrow, and that's part of the weird thing about the way anything works anymore. It feels like once you start to get a little bit underneath you, next thing you know, everything changes. Everything changes. I thought we had a good show here tonight. I'm sure we'll have another good one tomorrow. That's just how things work here. In the replay hour, uh, you'll hear Tom Sullivan talk about what's going on in the county and the balance of power when it comes to the county council. Great headline from earlier today in the St. Louis Business Journal. St. Louis County meeting descends into chaos over leadership fight. And who boy, got a little heated and ended a little bit early because of that. Also, Dr. Dean Finelli is an expert on pharmaceutical and chemical-related technologies. We talk about the COVID vaccine, where we are today, where it's going, the concerns, uh, the advancements. What does the future look like for masks? All those different things. Great insights from Dr. Finelli. I think you'll like that. We'll be back again tomorrow. Uh, join me online. Look for me there. Have a great night. We'll see you. Bye. My heart beats with the lonely rain Wishing I could see your face again Change the dial on the radio Find something playing kind of bluesy and slow if things were only like they used to be We'd be lying in love tonight I wish you'd call me on the telephone I don't want to spend another night alone Sleeping with
we really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 